It's time for Football Asia with Paul Williams. Yes, we round out the show as per usual with Football Asia in the company of Paul Williams from the Asian Game Podcast. How are you, Paul? I'm good, Simon. Alex, how are you guys? We're very pretty good. good. Pretty good. Uh, let's start with the Asian Champions League. Al Halal are back at the big dance again. Their fourth final in five years after winning uh, the Western region, which took a long time to complete after the <laughs> after the East. Uh, and again, they're going to play Urawa in the final. That's become an, almost a yearly occurrence. It's like an annual event now, the uh, the Champions League final between these two teams. Um, but Al-Halal, I mean, they've been in such a rich vein of form recently. Of course, they made the, the Club World Cup final. So coming into this sort of mini tournament that the Champions League knockout stage was, it, I guess they had a little bit of pressure and expectation. The fact that they'd made the Champions League final, they were overwhelming favourites to, to make it through. And they did just that. They scraped through in the quarterfinal against Fulard, who put up a, a fight, but She's that semi-final victory over uh, Al De Hale that they had, 7-0. I mean, I've been thinking about it the last couple of days and I'm struggling to think of a performance that was more dominant, more brutal and powerful than that first 45 minutes. I mean, they just completely pulverised Al De Hale. It was 5-0 at halftime. It probably could and should have been 7 or 8-0, um, such was the chances they had. They had Salim al missed a simple one-on-one. Uh, they had one chalked out by VAR as well. And it, it, it could have been an absolutely even more embarrassing night than what it was for Al De Hale. Uh, they took the foot off the gas in the second half and, and took it easy from them, but they were just in irresistible form. And the ACL, it is their playground and they've laid down a marker to Urawa now. They have absolutely no intention at all of handing this trophy back. Now I'm hearing that in, in, you know, with how long it's taken to get to this final and in trying to drag it out a bit longer, that, the final will be played in 2028. Is that is that right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could you could be onto something there, mate. You could be onto something. No, Never rule it out. We finally got to the final. Mate. That's good. It'll be in Qatar, obviously. <laughs> um, a big discussion on social media this week with regards to the Champions League started by your colleague Martin Lowe, Paolo, uh, regarding the Champions League and how best to make it more visible. Now, I chipped in with my two cents, um, saying that I favour going, forget about the group, the group stage, make it open, home and away, straight knockouts all the way through. I think straight that would regenerate. Yeah, straight knockout, like the old European Cup. And I think that would really generate a lot of excitement and also cut down on the financial responsibilities for a lot of clubs. Uh, it would mean that teams don't necessarily put out, uh, you know, weakened sides because of their domestic commitments. It would do away with dead robbers in the groups. Anyway, that's my two cents. Paolo, the, oh, hang on. I'm going to ask Paolo where he sets, but go on, Broski. Just a quick one. I'm thinking, I mean, would, would clubs invest? Because obviously sponsors, um, you know, invest and put money in knowing their club's going to be in the Champions League. If there's a potential that they'll only be in there for two games, do you think... Well, they're still taking part of the Champions League. And somebody made a point to me on Twitter today saying, well, you know, you, you need more home games to, for visibility. Well, this next Ch Champions League rotation, we've got one team in the Champions League. Mm. So they will play three home games as opposed to one. Ain't that much difference, is there? No. Anyway, Paolo, where do you sit in all of this? I did see that discussion. Um, and shameless plug as well. Martin and I recorded the 
the latest Asian game podcast last night and actually picked up on that discussion that you had as well. So everyone <laughs> go and go and listen to that for, um, for our uh, extensive thoughts on that as well. I don't necessarily agree um, that it should go to a straight knockout. I mean, I understand that the points you're making, I'm not entirely convinced that the format itself is what's holding the, the competition back. I think for me, the, the biggest issue is around trying to engage the audience to actually care about Asian football. That's the biggest issue. Whether teams play three games or whether they play one game, I don't think a Sydney FC fan is going to suddenly care more about the Champions League if they just play a knockout game as opposed to, you know, six group games um, and, and three home games. I don't think that's going to make a huge amount of difference. So for me, it's it's trying to get people that grew up on a diet and still continue to live on a diet of European football to actually care and take an interest in Asian football. It's about getting familiar with the teams. It's about getting familiar with the players, the rivalries, the intricacies, the nuances of Asian football. And only then will you see the competition take off. So I'm not entirely convinced it's the format that's the issue. It's the it's the greatest challenge that the AFC and every football association around the, the continent has. It's getting people to care about Asian football when they're trying to compete against European football at the same time. And um, I understand, you know, maybe trying to do something different to try and compete against that, but I'm not entirely convinced that that in itself is going to um, uh, be the answer to the problem. No, neither am I. Um, looking at the J League, <laughs> and you're both wrong. <laughs> uh, I get it, Gordon. Looking, looking at the J League, Paul, it was a good start, and it's been a good start of the campaign for for Muskie um, and Mitch Langerak, both with uh, Yokohama mm-hmm. and Nagoya, mm-hmm. of two of the three teams who started with uh, with perfect um, rounds so far. But yeah, good, good to see those two boys starting well. Absolutely on fire. And, and another Aussie as well, Pete Klamovsky, his Montedio Yamagata are two from two in J2 as well. But I, I watched the game between Yokohama and Urawa on the weekend. And the thing that really stood out for me watching it was just the ease with which Yokohama played and the ease with which they were able to get over um, Urawa there, who are on to another coach and another sort of new transition year. And you, you watched Yokohama play and it's the, they're just so comfortable on the ball. Everything that they do is just so instinctive. They almost play on autopilot to a to a degree, and they, and they do it at such a high level. Whereas against Dorara, as I said, starting again from fresh with a new coach, they look like a team who really had to think about what they were doing, and they looked a little bit stilted and disjointed when they were going forward. Didn't quite know what they were doing, where players were meant to be running, where they were meant to be passing. When you watched Yokohama, it was just everything was a breeze for them and they may not be playing their best football yet, but they're two from two and they couldn't possibly have started any better, um, which is perhaps a bit of a worry for the competition that they look making it look so easy without playing their best football. Um, at the other end of the scale, Nagoya are two from two without playing vintage football. They're playing two one nil wins. Um, not exactly the most exciting football, but winning football is good football at the, the same time. Um, two clean sheets from Mitch Langerak. They're, they're two from two. That's all they'll care about. And in the, the J-League, we know early momentum is so crucial. Um, Muskie picked that up last year. Nagoya didn't have it. So for them to be two from two, it's great to see the Aussies flying the flag. Yep, I do wonder if this might be Muskie's last season in Japan. I'm sure he wants to follow the Antipostokoglu route back to Europe. Maybe we'll save that uh, discussion for next week, Paul. Uh, I want to ask you about the K-League season, which uh, is underway in South Korea. FC Seoul defeating Harris- Harrison Delbridge's Incheon on the opening day. Uh, are they going to be the team to beat this season? I wouldn't say they're the team to beat 
coming into it. I think it's still John Book and Ulsan. They've dominated this competition for a long time, but I'm endlessly fascinated by NFC Seoul because we know going back a decade when, you know, a lot of Australian clubs played in the Champions League, played against FC Seoul, they made a Champions League final. They should be a powerhouse club, but for whatever reason over the last decade, some bad managerial managerial choices, um, some cutbacks in the budget, um, from from HQ, they've really fallen away. They've just staved off relegation a couple of times now. But you look at the squad on paper, and they probably should be the team to beat. They've got Ki Sung Young, who's returned um, from Europe last year. They've got a couple of national team players, Huang Ijo and Na Sang Ho, who both played uh, at the World Cup. Um, they've got proven foreigners in Palestovic and Ilyachenko, uh, who are proven at K League level. Jidong Won. Um, who's been crippled by injury the last couple of years, but he's only 30, 31. So if he can overcome those injuries, um, he'd still be a hell of a player. They have an incredible squad, but for whatever reason, they just can't make it stick. And we always get sort of teased by them earlier in the season. They tend to pick up a, a, an early win or two along the way and um, tease us that this might be the year. As you said, they got the win on the weekend. So here we are thinking again that perhaps this could be the year for FC Seoul. I hope it is because the... They're a big club, um, fantastic players. Um, it'd be great to see them. It'd be great to see someone challenge that duopoly that Ulsan and John Book have had for such a long time now in the K-League as well. So I really do hope it is their year. Uh, gee, I forgot about G Dong Won. Asian Cup 2011. A lot of people he have. He was an yeah. absolute <laughs> star for South Korea. I always remember Bernd Stanger going, he is fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Broski. Well, speaking of uh, South Korea, Jurgen Klinsmann's been appointed uh, the national team coach, uh, and it's not an appointment that sits all that well with you, is it? I don't think it's an appointment that sits all that well with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I don't think many fans in Korea are particularly happy about it either, judging by the responses I've seen on on social media um, to his appointment. Yeah, it, it, it sort of first came out last week that they were sort of down to the, the final couple and their preferred candidate was Jürgen Klinsmann. You just short, thought, surely not. Like, why? What, what is it about his coaching record after the last few years that would make them think that he's the appointment that they need to take this team forward? It makes no sense. His last national team gig was with the USA. He got sacked because he was bottom of CONCACAF qualifying, which is quite an effort to be bottom of CONCACAF qualifying with the United States. It's a system designed to ensure they get through every single time. So, um, yeah, he, any new coach will generally always be given a chance to prove himself, but he's on the the shortest of short leashes, I think, um, Jürgen Klinsmann. But for me, the really interesting thing about this game, a, a, another player of the past, Chadu Ree, um, I'm fascinated by his influence in all of this because their technical advisor, Michael Muller, who's another German um is he was recommended to the KFA by Chaudhuri, who did his badges in Europe underneath him. And, of course, Chaudhuri is on the FIFA technical study group um, alongside Jürgen Klinsmann, um, who worked – they worked alongside each other at uh, at the recent World Cup along on the technical study group. So wow. I wouldn't mind betting that, that Chaudhuri somewhere along the way has got some, some influence over some key decision makers and has put in a good word for, for Jürgen Klinsmann to get him over the line. Um, it's going to be fascinating. If they draw Iran again, which they always seem to do, Australia always draws Japan, Korea always draws Iran. After Klinsman's comments at the World Cup about Iran, geez, I'd love to see them draw each other or even draw Qatar where Kirosh is now um, <laughs> and have Klinsman versus Kirosh after what was said. So uh, 
it's going to be fascinating, yeah. that's for sure, one way or another. Did, didn't he say he'd seen them at the Arab Cup, which uh, is his first faux pas? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant stuff. That's a fascinating appointment, as is, incidentally, uh, Philip Trussier, who's been appointed the coach mm. of Vietnam. Uh, we've run out of time today, so I'll ask you about him uh, uh, next week, but uh, just a quick story. Yep. I interviewed Philip Trussier at the 1998 African Cup of Nations when he was the coach of Burkina Faso, and they got a surprise win. I forget who it was against. I asked him, how'd you do it? And he looked at me as if I'd asked him, you know, what, what was the cure for a, a, a terminal disease? And when I am the white witch doctor, this is what I do. <laughs> so there's going to be interesting times in Vietnam as well. We'll ask you about that next week, Paolo. Great stuff, mate. Speak to you then. You, Cheers, mate. guys. Thanks, mate.